Amen. Amen. Well, that's a good word, I think, um, for us to remember that we've got to take hold of Jesus in these days. And, um, you know, before I uh, jump into the message, I want to update you guys on what we are doing for Easter weekend. And so uh, we're really excited about the weekend, and obviously things are a little different, but um, I want to kind of lay out for you what we're doing this upcoming weekend to celebrate. Um, first and foremost, on Friday, Good Friday, uh, the day we celebrate that Jesus gave himself up for us and died on the cross, we're having our Good Friday service streaming from 5.30 to 6.30 Friday evening. We'd love for you to join us then. And I want to tell you, we're going to be taking communion together over the stream. And so I'd encourage you, get the juice, get the, get the bread, and get it ready. Uh, we want to be taking communion together, even though we won't be in the same room, but virtually taking communion together as the people of God on Friday night. Secondly, on Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday as it's known, at 10 a.m., we're going to be live streaming our Easter service. And I want to encourage you that if you've got friends or family or people who've maybe never been to church, I want to challenge us as a church to invite five people this Sunday morning to the stream to come and to gather together with us virtually for Easter. And then secondly, on Easter Sunday, after the service, from 11.30 to 12.30, we are doing something called Easter in the Parking Lot. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we as a church always go to a park and do a big celebration. We can't do that this year. So we decided to create a drive through experience. That means you got to stay in your car now, and we're going to pull up into the parking lot. We're going to have some stations where our staff has prepared some things and taking all the precautions necessary but just to, just to provide you some things, to, and especially for the kids, to provide that, uh, that Easter experience together, even though we can't be hanging out together. So drive through in the parking lot with us Easter Sunday. It's going to be an incredible experience. And so just to recap the weekend, we got a slide for you. Just to recap, though, we've got the Good Friday service, 5.30, all right? Then we've got Sunday morning, 10 a.m., streaming with us. And then, of course, we've got the drive-through experience Sunday from 1130 to 1230. And let me just say, it's an invitation to you to come. If you don't feel comfortable coming or don't have the arrangements, that is totally great. We just wanted to provide a space for those that, that, uh, that felt like they could participate on Sunday morning from 1130 to 1230 in our church parking lot. All right? Now, one more thing I want to uh, do before we uh, jump in the message is Obviously, um, all of us are connected to someone that's a first responder or a healthcare worker, be it nurses and doctors or administration at hospitals, or it'd be firefighters or police officers or EMS uh, personnel. So we just want to take a moment right now and to pray for them. And in our church, we know we have at least 35, maybe 40 uh, people that actually work in these professions. So we have a large group of people that are part of it. But what I want you to do right now as I actually want you to think of one person right now that you know as a health care worker or first responder. It could be a family. It could be a friend. It could be a roommate. I want you to think of them right now. We're just going to pray for them together. What would it look like if we just lifted up over 1,000 people right now in this moment that God would give them peace, would give them courage and strength? So let's pray together. Jesus, we ask right now that you would lift up every one of the people that we're mentioning by name. I want you to mention them by name right now in your house, in your living room. 
mention them, lift them up. Lord, we're asking you to come upon them in power, that your grace would be sufficient. Lord, we ask that your mercies would be new today over them. Lord, we're asking for every doctor, every nurse, every firefighter, every person that's working on the front lines, God, that you give them courage. And Lord, we do pray for divine protection over their health in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that they would not become sick. Lord, they would be healthy. They would be strong. Lord, we pray that their sleep would be deep. And God, we pray that you would give them courage from the deepest places. And Spirit of God, meet them in their day-to-day. In those long days of 10, 12, 14-hour days, Lord, meet them where they are and allow them to know that you're present with them in the midst of all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're so proud of and thankful for you guys that are uh, out there really laying your lives down for the rest of us. Thank you, and we are honored as a church to get to get behind you in prayer. Um, well, you know, right now, church, um, uh, we are waiting for things to return to normal. Again, we don't know if it's going to be uh, normal or semi-normal or uh, nothing like normal, but we know that the days we live in are very interesting at the least, and that many of us know that the future looks uncertain. The future from all practical standpoints in terms of restaurants and hotels and and sports. Is this team going to play again? If you're a parent, you've got kids. Is my son or daughter's uh, sports team going to convene? We're not sure about the returning back to schools, and we're unclear about the different things happening in our society nationwide. And so in these days and around the world, we are living in a time of uncertainty where there can be much uh, uh, instability and insecurity in our lives. But we're longing for certainty, aren't we? Like, we're longing for certainty and stability and security. We want those things to be part of our lives. And um, although our times we live in are, are very different from the times in the Bible, I want to point us to a passage today that actually speaks into maybe a little bit of what we're experiencing and that the disciples themselves were in a similar time of uncertainty. If you got your Bibles, I want you to Open them up to uh, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth gospel listed out there. And, and John was one of the disciples of Jesus. And as we open up our Bibles there, I want you to, um, I, I, I want you to just kind of put a, put a little bookmark there because we're actually going to backtrack into Exodus chapter 12 because what we're about to read here in John chapter 13 is a moment in history that is very significant. It was a Thursday night, and Jesus had gathered together with his disciples in a room up on the second or third story of a building, and it says that they gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, they gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, for many of us, we've heard the term Passover. We may know some things about it, but I want to take us back to where this celebration originated back in Exodus chapter 12. As you're turning there, this is a meal that was instituted at the time that the people of God were actually in Egypt, still captive, still in slavery. And remember, these people, the Jewish people, they had been enslaved for 400 years. 400 years underneath a foreign power rule, living in their land, doing hard labor day in, day out, not free to worship their God as they would choose, and here they go. God finally says, it's time to release my people from the hands of Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. 
And so this is what happens. You know the story. He raises up Moses. Moses shows up, goes to Pharaoh several different times, gives him several chances to release the people of God. He didn't release them. And so what did God do? He sent a series of plagues, right? Nine plagues. And then the 10th plague came, and that's where we insert the Passover meal. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, where we begin. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male and a year old. You may take it from the sheep. Or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. So if you see the picture here, the whole host, all the Israelites, they're in Egypt, in captivity, and part of the 10th plague is that the Lord speaks to Moses, and he speaks to the people and says, here's what you got to do tonight. We're all going to do it together. We're going to be in unity together, doing this same thing together, because the Lord has spoken. This is our ticket out of here. This is the way of freedom out of here, is that a lamb has to be killed, a sacrifice has to be made, and in order to know that, we have to take the blood of that sacrifice, put it on the doorpost, so that when the angel of the Lord comes, comes to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt, that he will pass over your house and that you will be spared because of the blood of the Lamb. Continues on in verse 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do you see that? He's passing over the people, but only those that have the proper sacrifice. Only those that have sacrificed a lamb, a goat, without blemish. Now, back to John 13. Jesus gathers with his disciples. They're there to celebrate the Passover meal. And that night, there are several key moments we're going to look at this morning. But one of those moments is that Jesus, during supper, he gets up. He then takes a towel, ties it around his waist, and then grabs a large bowl or a basin of water. He fills it up, and he begins going one by one to the disciples to wash and dry their feet. Jesus does this. Now, after he does this, he asks the question to his disciples, do you understand what I've done to you? It's a great question. Do you understand what I've done. Now, I'm sure some of them are thinking, well, you, you washed our feet, right? But I think he's asking the question to go a little deeper, right? And he says in John 13, verse 13, 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus washing the feet. Now, this example he gives in this moment in time was actually quite unexpected for a number of reasons. First and foremost, to get up during a meal with your friends and family to wash their feet is not normal in any culture, period. Not then, not now. But on top of that, in a home at the time, we have to remember they weren't all wearing Nikes and Adidas, okay? These men were either wearing sandals made of some sort of leather strapping or they were barefoot. And as we know today, they didn't have concrete or asphalt back then. They actually had dirt roads. And as you know, they didn't have automobiles. They actually had donkeys and mules and sheep and goats. And you know what they leave behind when they travel down the road? And so as these men walk down the road, they are uh, collecting all of the sights and sounds of the town or of the roads they're walking on. So when they get up to this room to celebrate this very important Passover meal, what we know is that actually none of their feet have been washed, so they're eating with stinky feet. Their feet are covered in the mess that they just walked in. Walking around the town, simply walking around, makes their feet dirty. And so Jesus gets up in this moment, and he decides to wash their feet, which socially would have been unexpected and unacceptable. Because you see, in a house, what would happen is that a servant or a slave would be washing the feet of the people. Or in some instances, foot washing is something that wives did for their husbands. Children did for their parents. Or disciples did for their teachers. So it would have been quite strange and countercultural for Jesus to do this at all. Let alone, he washes the feet of a man named Judas. The very man that he knew that night, within hours, was about to betray Jesus. And tell the authorities about his whereabouts. Think about how odd this whole thing is that Jesus comes in, and after three and a half years, he decides to have this powerful moment and this powerful teaching on servanthood. See, in this single moment, Jesus is flipping the script. He's literally turning an established culture and hierarchy on its head, upside down, reworking an entire mindset that's been established for thousands of years. He flips it upside down to show his disciples, guys, there's a new way of living. We're not going to do the old ways, the new ways. Now, Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of God. He would go in and teach these parables. The kingdom of God is like this. It is like that. And he was trying to teach them. But in this moment, he was demonstrating to them, not just doing a sign or a wonder to someone who was blind, not just multiplying the bread and fish for the others, but to them, the men who had followed him, who were closest to them. He said, I'm doing this for you. I need you to see, I need you to see a new way of thinking because now you are about to follow in my footsteps. You are now being empowered. You are now being given the responsibility or in, or, or, or in another way, you are now being knighted to go and do the same things that I am doing. So Jesus shows us a new way of thinking and doing. And in John 13, 16 through 17, he says, truly, truly. Remember, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, Another way to say it is, listen up, right? Truly, truly, 
I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, this is interesting. Because right here in this moment, Jesus is telling his disciples, a servant's not greater than his master. But yet the master just went and served those who were following him. The disciples at this point are a little confused, <laughs> probably. Wait a second, you just washed our feet, but now you're telling us that I, I don't understand what you're doing. You see, Jesus is reworking our mindset. For one, we have to remember that Jesus actually said in his own words, I only do what I see the Father doing. The entire life and ministry of Christ, he is doing, he is going places, he is doing things, he's in tune with the Father. He's allowing the Father God to lead him and to guide him, right? So he's doing what the Father's doing. So in a way, he actually chose to serve the Father in his mission and his ministry and what he's doing on earth. So his disciples come along. He teaches them. He shows them different things. He demonstrates things to them. And here he gets to wash their feet, turns everything upside down. But then he also says to them, guess what? Um, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Referencing back to the whole night and everything else they've done. You are blessed if you will do what I do. See, Jesus is demonstrating a way of the kingdom, which is actually that those that are leading are meant to serve. It's the idea of servanthood. And honestly, Jesus is the greatest figure in all of world history when it comes to servant leadership. And I just want to take a moment to speak to our husbands and all of our single men watching right now. We have an opportunity in our world right now, today, maybe more than ever, to serve those that we live with, to serve the neighbors on our street. We have the opportunity right now to either be apathetic and passive or to be activated and to be servant-hearted. I want to challenge the men, <laughs> including myself, to up our servant game. You see, as the men of the house, you're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to not only be the spiritual leader, but the father figure and the figurehead, and you need to lead in that way. But that kind of leadership that your wife and your children want to follow is one that says, I'm going to serve you first. It means, hey, what show do you guys want to watch? Not what do I want to watch. It means, what would you guys like to eat for a meal? I'll eat that, whatever it is. It's not everyone serve me, it's let me serve you. You see, the model that Jesus gave us goes beyond just the realm of ministry. It goes into all of life. That all of life is meant for us to be people to say, look, we have got to be servant-hearted everywhere we go. And everything that we are thinking through is not about me, it's about serving them. And with much responsibility and authority that God has given men on planet Earth, his desire all the while was for men to lead by serving their people. Do you understand? It is not this, this, this top-down hierarchy. With much, with much authority comes much responsibility, right? And therefore, much is required of us, which means Jesus, as the best leader, the most perfect man ever in world history, is saying, I will go low. So my question is at this hour is, are you going low? And if you're not, take the opportunity to repent to your family, to your friends, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, say, hey, I want to go low. I want to start being more like Jesus. I want to serve you. How can I do that? And it's not a serving so that people, uh, uh, you know, that they give you a reward or even a pat you on the back. 
It's why do we serve? Because that's the way Jesus does it. That's the way he loves people. So we have the opportunity to step into that realm. But you know, this night, as soon as the Passover meal was celebrated and Jesus washed their feet, Judas left to go betray Jesus to the authorities. And he got up to his disciples, Jesus did, and, and um, he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. In John 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Ow. You can say it. You can say, that hurts. Peter, this is, this is, he's like, Jesus, I'm your boy. I'm your man. Like, right-hand guy. I've been here this whole time. Remember, I was a fisherman. Then you grabbed me. I did the walk on water thing. You know, you, you rescued me. I was there. Jesus, of course, man, I'm your guy. But then for Jesus to say, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll deny me three times before the crow, which means before the sun rises. Now, this is in the evening, which means he's saying in one single night, you're going to literally deny me? Now, pause. Bring yourself into this moment, <laughs> into this exchange between Peter and Jesus. You know, for us, we may be reading this story, read it before, and say, man, that Peter, you know, can't believe that guy. He totally stabbed you in the back. He totally denied him three times. I would never do that, right? Lest we judge, <laughs> I wonder if, um, I wonder, even though we may say, I would never deny Jesus, I would never even consider that a possibility, never even come close to what Peter did. I think that um, we've been questioned about our faith, maybe been mocked, or even felt threatened, as Peter did that night when he denied knowing Jesus. And in those moments is the true test. I wonder what's really inside of us. How committed are we to Jesus when the going gets tough, when things get desperate? I wonder how many of us, no matter what the cost, when someone says, do you know this man? How many of us would say, yes, absolutely? And how many of us would say, I'll take the fifth? I just wonder, because sometimes we read the scriptures, even me as well, and we tend to judge the experience of the disciples. But I think God's trying to show us something. We're very much like them. We're not so far removed from Peter. Peter's actually a great guy. <laughs> so great, Jesus actually pulled him in to be one of his disciples. Out of millions of people, billions on the planet, he chose him. So I just want us to think, how committed am I to Jesus? And maybe there needs to be some soul-searching to say, man, I don't want there to be a hint of denial of Jesus. I don't want to be shy when someone asks me about my faith. I don't want to be scared when someone says, can you pray for me? And, and I don't want to recoil when someone gives an argument that makes me feel threatened that I would say, no, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Lord. He's my King. He's my Savior. Without Him, I've got nothing. But what was Jesus really getting at with Peter? You see, I believe Peter was still struggling with some religious zeal. 
and had not experienced true brokenness just yet. Because you see, true brokenness, church, is it's not self-protecting. It's not self-promoting. And when Peter was asked multiple times that night, when he ended up denying Jesus, he felt threatened. He felt like if he would have given a different answer, he would be in trouble. He was self-protecting or self-promoting. I wonder how often we do that. <laughs> we want to protect our image, protect our status quo, maybe protect where we are standing is in the office or socially, that we won't be honest with our true convictions. So that when Jesus responds to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? That's a big question that I want all of us to say, absolutely, yes. You know, over the years, I've had the, the honor, really, the privilege of officiating many weddings, some of your weddings. And um, my favorite part of any wedding ceremony is the exchange of vows, hands down. Why? Because whether people exchange traditional vows or they write their own, there's something about a man and a woman, the bride and the groom, turning and facing one another and looking at each other in the eyes intently with the whole room watching, looking at each other and saying, I commit this to you. I covenant my life to you till death do us part. That there's something powerful in the exchange of vows. And you know what? These vows are tested for the rest of their lives, right? Like the vows are tested in marriage and sometimes pushed to the brink. And I just want to speak in any marriages right now that are feeling pushed to the brink. I want to admonish you, go back to the vows. See, look, we committed on that day. We made a covenant to one another and before God, before the witnesses say, we're going to make it through this. I'm not saying these days are easy. But what I am saying is that God has given us the strength and the power to say, no matter what happens, I will lay down my life for you, and I will remain in covenant with you. You know, Jesus later on in John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. <laughs> you see, um, we're being tested in these days. We're being, we're being challenged. All of us are. The circumstances are quite odd and unusual and Difficult for some. You're either bored or you're more busy than you ever expected. So I encourage everyone to consider, for those that are married, to go back to the vows and say, God, put these fresh in me again. But you know, we, each of us, if you have given your life to Jesus, if he's become your Lord and Savior, you've made a vow to him to follow him the whole way, not halfway. To follow him the whole way. You see in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. You see, there's a narrow gate. There's a narrow way. I, I think about my days playing soccer as a kid. And something that always frustrated me was when the coach would tell us to go run laps. And he would specifically say, hey, we're not going to cut the corners, right? But, you know, always on the team, you've got a few guys that 
just seemed to always cut the corners. And I don't know why it always frustrated me. Even though our coach didn't watch us do it, the expectation is that we would follow through with his instructions, whether he was looking over our shoulder or not. And I want to urge us in these days that we have the opportunity to cut corners or to actually round the corner. To cut the corner, actually to go outside of the lines and to do it and to go faithfully, fully, to be people that go the whole way, not halfway, in our commitment to Jesus. I'm not saying it's easy with the different things we're having to deal with right now, but it's possible for us to be wholehearted followers of Jesus. And so what did Jesus say to the disciples, right? What did he say to them? They had this Passover meal. He washes their feet. Judas leaves to go betray him. There's this exchange between Jesus and Peter, and it's kind of like this future is uncertain. They're not sure what to think about. And in John 14, I want to read this to you. It's what Jesus says to them. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. We need to hear that, don't we? Let not your hearts be troubled, church. <laughs> Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I love this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Thomas, it's not giving you a map. It's not showing you directionally. It's showing you me. I, Thomas, am the way is what Jesus says. I am the truth, and I am the life. And Thomas, no one comes to the Father, which means no one can come up and hang out to the place that I'm preparing for you right now. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in heaven where you can die and you can celebrate. There are no more tears, no more sickness, no more pain. That's where I'm going. And he's saying, if you know me, you know the Father, and all you have to do is to know that I am the way. Just follow me. Metaphorically, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the way of thinking and feeling and deciding and doing. So it's not only that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, to have a relationship with God the Father, but it also shows us the way to live. I want to end, end with this. Um, you know, in high school, there were these bracelets. Uh, they were a really big deal, and I'm 37 years old. If you were in your 30s or 40s, you know what I'm talking about? They said, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Now, listen, I wore one. I wasn't, I wasn't too cool not to have one. I had one as long as everybody else did. And so we had these WWJD bracelets. And, you know, early on, it's this really cool idea of people wearing a bracelet and being like, what would Jesus do, right? What became a fad and kind of lost its meaning. But I was reflecting back on that again today. And I just thought, you know what? <laughs> I, I think we're in a moment where we can turn back and say, we need to start looking at life like that. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus feel? What would he do with my kids right now? What would Jesus feel when he hears this story of tragedy? 
what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? That we as believers, you start asking those questions again. Because that is how we follow him. That is how we know the way. Because you see, the way is wrapped up in him, the person. It's not just a direction or circumstances. It's in a relationship. When he says, I am the way, he's inviting us to know him in an intimate way. And so, for some of us that are watching right now, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> You're hearing me share, and you've heard about church. You've maybe, someone has told you the story of Jesus or really what happened, or maybe you have been to some Easter services before, but I want you to know something. In these days, these are the days where people are asking the question, is there really a God? <laughs> Does he really love me? And can I put my hope in something besides everything that I've just now lost or the circumstances of our day? And I want to tell you, yes. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. Everyone who's come to Christ was hopeless at some point and hurting and not knowing where to turn, not knowing what to take hold of. But Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're listening right now, I want to pray for you. If you're saying, man, my heart is beating, I want Jesus. I want to have someone to follow, not just my own feelings or my own ideas or man's ideas. I want the living God. I want to know him to follow him. You can simply pray this prayer. Jesus, I ask that you would come and live inside of me. I repent of my sins, and I know that you died on the cross for my sins, that literally, just like in Egypt where the lamb was a sacrifice, and the blood was put on the doorpost, and that you passed over Lord, that no plague befell upon them. Lord, I pray right now that you would literally be the blood of Jesus would come upon the people praying right now and that, and, that, and that as they embrace your death on the cross, they would know that you are the perfect sacrifice. You are the lamb that was slain so that we can be forgiven. And so God, I pray for every person right now that has a longing to know you, you would satisfy that longing. You would meet them where they are right now in Jesus' name. And we know that you didn't just die on a cross. The next Sunday, we're going to celebrate that you resurrected back to life. You defeated death. And in that, what you demonstrated was your power over sin itself. And so, Lord, I just declare right now, everyone praying, that they would know the hope of Jesus. They could be forgiven of their sins 100%, not partially, but holistically. And that there is life. There is life on the other side of the cross. That there is a new hope. There is a new way of living for them. I pray. Just for everyone else, just um, just want to invite you right now that Jesus is ready to minister to your heart. Even though we can't see you right now where you are, that if you're troubled or anxious or you're being breakthrough, that Jesus is the way of peace. He is the way of breakthrough. And so I just want you to pray to him right now. He can hear a thousand plus voices at the same time. And what he really wants is for you to connect with him. So wherever you are right now, I want to ask that you would just pray right now, that every one of us would pray to Jesus. If you just receive Jesus Christ for the first time, amen, you can pray to him right now. There's no waiting period. You get to talk to him right now. So as a church right now, let's just pray. Whatever's in your heart, just give it to Jesus. 
So Lord, I give you any discouragement I've experienced these last three weeks. Lord, I give you any hopelessness that I have carried around in my slumped shoulders, my tone. God, I, I give to you the stress, God, of taking care of kids and working a job and, and trying to be creative and fun, but failing at times this past week. God, I give that to you. Lord, I, I give you my own weakness, God, of not being the husband I need to be day in and day out. I want more, Lord. And Lord, I just ask for help. I ask for help in these days, Jesus. If you would help my heart to remain steadfast, to remain full of hope, not disappointment, not fear, but to be given to life, power, and a sound mind. Lord, I pray that each and every home, each and every person streaming right now, that they would experience the way of the kingdom. You describe the kingdom as a place of righteousness, peace, and joy. Lord, I pray that righteousness, peace, and joy would fill every home, every apartment, every room, and every soul, that people would experience the transformational power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He has the power to come through your screen, to come through audibly. He can meet you where you are right here and right now. But that righteousness, peace, and joy would reign in your home because that is the way. That is what Jesus brings. That is what he delivers. That is what he promises. That is who he is. And if we will hold fast to him, hold on to him, not let go, he will see us through this time. We are not without hope. Lord, we thank you. And we hold on to you this week. Teach us how to follow your ways again. In Jesus' name.